Hello, and welcome to Remember the Film, the podcast where we also struggle with whether or not something should be plural in the title or not. I'm hey. Jeff Grizzolrich, and with me as always are Hugo Panay. How are you, Hugo? Hello, doing good, doing good. What about you? I'm great. Did you miss me? Uh, yes, as always. <laughs> Every moment without Hugo is, is a moment not worth living. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> okay. And Josh Bradley. Uh, what's new with you, Josh? Hello. Hi. Uh, someone stole my bike. So now I'm just really mad and need to get my bike back. That's a bit. No one stole my bike. I don't have a bike, actually. Well, I mean, that sounds like a travesty in and of itself. <laughs> Luckily, my livelihood doesn't depend on me having a bike. Right. That would, that would suck. Which is what we're talking about here today. Uh, the... <laughs> The movie, our film to remember for this week, and our main topic is Bicycle Thieves, a.k.a. The Bicycle Thief, which we will be talking about uh, later on for sure. A.k.a. Italian title? Ladri di biciclette. Thank you. There you Thank go. you. Uh, yes. So, this movie uh, was released in November, on November 24th, 1948 in Italy, and then released December 13th, 1949 in the United States. Directed by Vittorio De Sica. If I came close to that, I'll yes. be very happy. That was good. Uh, it was adapted from a little-known novel by Luigi Bartolini, which mm-hmm. uh, he, I, I believe he was a poet. More, he was a more well-known uh, yes. poet. But uh, and also, it doesn't really. It only it barely keeps anything from the novel. Right. It's, it's basically just, the, just title the title and a yeah. couple of the uh, themes. Right. Yeah. Uh, but still, if you're going to adapt, you got to adapt. So mm-hmm. <laughs> this uh, movie was nominated for Best Writing, the equivalent of Best Adapted Screenplay at the 22nd Academy Awards in 1950. Fun fact, it lost to a letter to three wives by Joseph L. Mankiewicz, brother <laughs> of Mank, of the movie Mank. <laughs> I think I think Joseph is in, I think he's in Mank, isn't he? At some point? He might remember. be. Did he make if an appearance? Seen. Does he, does he come to Victorville? Does he come to Victorville to like try to talk Mank out of writing the screenplay at I, some point? I don't think so, but I think he is one in one of the flashbacks uh, where he's like, where Mank is like, "Oh, you're working here because kind of because of me of my influence." And yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Was, was he on the yeah, phone? Yeah. Did he get a phone call from? Him? Well, regardless. Could be, could be. <laughs> regardless, uh, our our Mank, Herman Mankiewicz, only won the one Oscar for Susan Cain, but his brother Joe, this is one of four that he won, so. I don't know why um, I couldn't just sit this one out and let Bicycle Thieves win the Oscar, but... Right, yeah, I mean, like... Whatever, yeah, Joey Mank. Quit being greedy, guy. <laughs> <laughs> but the uh, Bicycle Thieves did win an honorary Oscar for Best Foreign Film, which did not become a official category for another seven years. Yeah, back in the early 50s, it was just, like, the governors, the board of governors for the Academy would, like, vote for an honorary award, and, like, they didn't give out Best Foreign Film every year, but, like, most years they did. Like, mm. and it, it didn't become, like, an official competitive category that the whole Academy voted on until 57, I don't think. Which is interesting to me, uh, you know, especially in the early days of Hollywood. You know, Hollywood obviously was growing into the global powerhouse of cinema, but there were other countries making a lot of movies. <laughs> well, also, like, the 50s were pretty xenophobic. I'm pretty comfortable saying that in the United States. Yeah. I don't Fair. know if that was part of it, but, you know. There is that. Yeah, <laughs> probably sure. a contributing factor at the very least. Uh, Bicycle Thieves also topped the inaugural sight and sound list in 1952. And as I learned last week, sight and sound, not just about sight and sound. <laughs> it's just the title <laughs> of the magazine, yes. 
And uh, as as I mentioned last week, though, that Sight and Sound is like regarded as possibly the most definitive, like best films of all time list, or it's one of the most respected. Yeah. And they only they only put out a list every ten years. And mm-hmm. the first list they ever put out was fifty two, and Bicycle Thieves was number one. But then in sixty two, seventy two, eighty two, ninety two, and two thousand two, Citizen Kane was number one. And then the most recent list, twenty twelve, Vertigo is number one. So I guess they'll have another list out next year. We'll see uh, where Bicycle Thieves lands. It's cur- well, they also That'll so it's it's based it's based on like it's voted on by like eight hundred critics and academics, and then there's a second list that's voted on by like three hundred different film directors. And mm-hmm. the the critics list and the directors list used to be one thing, but then in '82 they split off. And so on the most recent 2012 list, Bicycle Thieves is number 33 on the critics list. It's number 10 on the directors list. So the 300 directors called this the best movie, this 10th best movie of all time. Uh, and in addition to just being an important and popular movie in cinematic history, it also is uh, emblematic of an important moment in Italian history. Uh, As Hugo is going to explain to us uh, a little more, this is an example of Italian neorealism, which was a literary movement. Uh, Tell us about that, Hugo. Yeah, so neorealism began uh, in Italy during the last few years of uh, fascism. So during, right before, but mostly during the 40s, so during uh, World War II, and in the immediate aftermath of, of the Second World War. Um, as a movement, and I think, Jeff, you had this, uh, sorry, Grizz, you had this on the outline uh, as well, the uh, overall definition of the movement is kind of loose. There aren't, there are some staples, but there's no very clear-cut definition. It certainly existed as a response to the 20 years of fascist rule that Italy uh, went through, Um and a lot of its themes are, uh, I think, one the main staple that I, I think is there is, is this idea of art and fiction being used as a political statement, which is in response to 20 years where either art was uh, very propagandistic because it was controlled by the, the, you know, the totalitarian state, or it was completely apolitical and it was light comedy or, you know, a lot of, lot of uh, also a lot of racist uh, literature and movies in the 20s and 30s in Italy, of course. Well, and, you know, talking about the propaganda and, and all that, that was, at least for the movie side of, you know, Italian neorealism, uh, mm-hmm. that was what led to the birth of that in, in movies as well, was uh, yeah. two factors. Uh, one, the Allied forces uh, bombed, <laughs> uh, what was the name of the, the studio? I had it written down. Cinema? No, oh, no. Cinema is the magazine. Cinecita. Cinecita. Yes, and they they bombed yeah. that, destroying the, the studio, which uh, in an attempt mm-hmm. to reduce propaganda. Uh, and then... yeah, and it, and it wasn't just that. Like part of the studios are also used uh, right after the German occup German and fascist occupation of Rome. Part of the big uh, buildings that were still intact that hadn't been bombed were used for refugees. That were used for people who were displaced and their homes had been destroyed or were occupied currently. Because like there was, there was kind of a civil war going on inside Rome even before the the Allies actually arrived. Because of course the the Americans and the English uh, touched land in Italy in the south and started coming up, but there was already kind of civil war going on in the rest of the country. So a lot of the studios were being used uh, to just give somewhere to sleep to people who had been displaced. So 
what what are so the hallmarks of of the genre like we haven't yeah. really said yet like it's a focus on uh realism and poverty mm-hmm. and uh kind of life in the in the street basically not like it's yeah. not glitzy or glamoury and in <clears throat> in movies it's very much uh, usually life in the streets of uh, italian cities uh in literature I, I, most of the famous neorealist books are a little more focused on during the war um the what is called the here the resistenza partigiana which is the the resistance basically it's the resistance movements that were armed militias that fought against uh the fascists and the nazis from within um these of course uh you know during world war 2 the country was in turmoil there was a war going on so that was the time where the movements were able to organize and find weapons and start to fight back and the most famous books in the genre are you know I think I, I quote here Beppe Finoglio because he's one of the authors that every Italian student will have read uh, by the time they get out of high school because he he's possibly the most well-known over here and he wrote mostly about stories of, of partisans. And yeah, but as you were saying, it's it's usually very... it's it's There are stories about the common folk living... Right either during the war under fascist rule or right after the war in just the economic depression that, you know, resulted from the war. And as Grizz said, because the Allies had bombed the movie studio, the mm-hmm. ma- one of the main movie studios in Italy, that means that a lot of these movies in the neo-realist movement were not shot on sound stages or at yeah. the studio, but rather on location, in the streets, in the, you know, broken down buildings themselves, which certainly is the case in Bicycle Thieves. Yes. Yeah. And so in addition to filming on location being one of the hallmarks of neorealism, one of the other ones uh, that is pretty consistent is the use of non-professional actors in the majority of roles in the movies. And that, of course, was definitely true for Bicycle Thieves. Uh, If Nomadland had been made 60 years earlier in Italy, you'd call it a neorealist movie. probably. 100%. Yes. Yeah. And uh, so for Bicycle Thieves, Lamberto Maggiorani uh, was a factory worker. And Enzo Staiola, how do yeah, I? Staiola, Enzo Staiola uh, was uh, who's the little boy Bruno in the movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, his father was selling flowers near one of the production sites, and Desica cast him as the son in the film because he you know <laughs> saw a cute kid selling flowers. <laughs> yeah, this kid's still around too. The actor's still alive. Oh wow! I was actually yeah, he's like curious. Eighty, like 80 uh, you know, yeah. Because uh, yeah. obviously this movie being from 1948, the majority of the actors have passed on, but uh, that's pretty he's crazy. He's only like eight or nine at the time, so yeah, he's he's still kicking. And the other thing I wanted to note was that while most of the cast was not like not professional actors, uh, almost all of them went on to star in additional movies after this, mm-hmm. uh, which I think is perfectly fitting because honestly, most of them were pretty good actors. <laughs> yeah, I was actually pretty surprised by how good the acting is, considering none of, most of them are not. But I guess um, they're portraying a story that's so real and so uh, powerful for the people living through it at the time that if you're a factory worker in 1946 Italy, you understand what it means to not have the economic means to survive. So, right. you know. The other thing I, I want to mention, we've talked about it uh, with you know Mussolini's dictatorial rule and being forced to make propaganda or make like Hugo said, lighthearted comedies. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a, a, a magazine called Cinema, or Cinema, yep. I guess would be the... Cinema, yes. Uh, 
and the, several film critics from that magazine, which coincidentally, the editor-in-chief for the magazine was Mussolini's son. Uh, so they... How, how do you get that job? <laughs> I wonder. Uh, but several critics uh, began uh, writing, complaining about how Italian cinema no longer made films that were relevant to the public. And I got to say, like, how did that one get past the editor, you know? <laughs> it's uh, It was happening during the 40s. So during World War II, the, the actual control that uh, the fascists had on people was loosened quite a lot because the war effort... Like, Italy, um, you know how fascism is where they have illusion of grandeur and presented themselves as if they had this, oh, the most powerful army next to Hitler. Italy was not as well equipped as most of the other countries wasn't as rich as most of the other countries in the war and so the war effort took away from the internal control which is why the resistance movements were able to fight back well and so this complaint uh which rang true with the public uh is Mm -hmm. the other aspect that led to the birth of neorealist film uh they're credited with kind of triggering that which i think is cool uh and then uh, go ahead josh uh, yeah, I mean, I'm glad we. I'm really glad we have an Italian on the podcast who can speak to the history of the art movement because I I don't know the history. I just I I know the term Italian neorealism because I have a I have a 101 level understanding of film history. But like, you can actually, if you're interested in this kind of thing, you can. If you're interested in like film history and how it progressed, you can like start with Italian neorealism in the in the 40s and 50s, and you can see how that kind of influenced the French New Wave in the 60s and then you can see how the french new wave directors influenced the guys in new hollywood in the 1970s like scorsese and coppola and cassavetes and woody allen and that kind of thing and those guys influenced the people who are making movies today so you can you yeah. can kind of trace a pretty There's linear a path from it like sure. i mean honestly i think if you watch most movies from the late 40s and watch bicycle thieves most movies today share more in common with Bicycle Thieves stylistically than they do with most other movies from 1948. I think that's probably fair to say. So you can yeah. definitely trace trace how Italian neorealism got got us to the movies that we have today. I think. So sure. just to wrap up, neo Italian neorealism in in film, it was non professional actors filming on location, and most importantly, uh, it served as a means of holding a mirror up to the Italian culture at the time. Uh, mm-hmm. To show everyone, you know, things are tough out here. Th- things yeah. are things are not uh, not in great yeah. shape. Yeah, you can uh, say that. And Bicycle Thieves was you know far from the first neorealist movie, and certainly not the last one. Uh, but it is one that has had the most staying power uh, long term. Uh, the only one I can name. Yeah, that's for sure. Yeah. Uh, now I I obviously did some research on this before last night, and I do see that uh, Hugo added to the notes that uh, the quintessential neorealist film would be Rome open city, uh, which was directed by Roberto Rossellini and yep. released in 1945 right after the war. And I, that name came up a ton when I was uh, yep. <laughs> searching through for information it, on Italian it neorealism. Would be, it would be for me, the quintessential movie it, that you want to watch in this genre because it deals directly with fascist rule. It was filmed, like, they started doing pre-production in 1944. So this was during the war, during occupation in Rome. This was when the studios were being bombed. This is, you know, they they had to, sh- like, they had to shoot on location because the studios weren't there. Um, you know, the, the film is set during the occupation and it was filmed right after the occupation. So this is 
very much, you know, Josh, I think, wrote guerrilla filmmaking somewhere, and it, it is absolutely that. And it is the movie that really, I think, encompasses all of that, all of this movement is in cinema. Also, Roberto Rossellini, uh, married to Ing- Ingrid Bergman, yes. and uh, father of Isabella Rossellini. Fun fact. So, at one point, Martin Scorsese's father-in-law, Roberto Rossellini. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and yes. David Lynch's, too. Well, they never actually married, I don't think. Isabella well, Rossellini and David Lynch never actually got married. But, yeah. <laughs> Man, Hollywood. you got to mention David Lynch. <laughs> and, and Gary Oldman. So, she married she married Scorsese and and dated David Lynch and Gary Oldman. So, it's just a, just a icon. <laughs> Isabella, <laughs> Isabella Rossellini. Icon. Well, so, but the one we're talking about today is Bicycle Thieves, and... Uh, it Bicycle Thieves was in my mind because, as you guys know, I've been uh, slowly working my way through the IMDb Top 250 for years now, and Bicycle Thieves is on there, and uh, so this was a great opportunity for me to check another one off the list. Like number 110 or something like that? I, I yeah, saw something like this that. Earlier today. It, yeah. uh, it's, it's pretty high up there on the list. Yeah. Uh, so I was really looking forward to it, so uh, I, I guess we're, we're going to dive into the spoiler-free bit of our plot summary and then we'll talk a little bit about the themes of the movie and what we think of it and all that here uh but anyways bicycle thieves is about a man named antonio ricci uh who uh, at the beginning of the movie is waiting to find out if he can get a job from the employment office and like a throng a throng of people gather around this like one guy who's got like, a clipboard and like jobs to hand out for the and day. they're all yelling at him yeah. like come on you got to give me a job i need work like, yeah. i don't make the jobs guys i just yeah. hand them out <laughs> right uh yeah. and this is the first point in the movie that we are immediately shown the state of things in rome at this time uh, buildings of, are in shambles yeah you know there this is so soon after the after the war they're still rebuilding uh, and then in addition to that, the the jobs that people had during the war and pre-war, a lot of those have gone away and they're having to transition into new employment. And for a lot of people, that's a near impossible task. Uh, so Antonio's uh, waiting to get a job and lucky him, he gets assigned a job on the condition that he still owns a bike. And, mm-hmm. you know, the idea that that's a job requirement to me seems uh, weird. <laughs> But, I get it. I mean, I think it. I, I think it makes sense. You, but you have to really understand how poor uh, Italy was in the 1940s. Like that, people didn't have cars. People didn't like public transportation was, as you see in the movie, not adequate enough to get you around the city. And if you have mm-hmm. to move around the city very fast, you, you're gonna need a bicycle. Also, Rome. Yes. It like the central area of Rome is sneakily not as big as you might think. Well, no, I, I, I'm actually well aware of that because I'm mm. a big fat guy and I still managed to walk around Rome and see all yeah. the sites I wanted to see. And uh, you know, so it must have been very centrally located. Otherwise, I wouldn't have been willing to do that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, unfortunately for Antonio, his bike is currently in a, you know, in hock. He had it, he had pawned it so that they could afford to eat. Uh, and, you know, that's. The important thing, you know, uh, his wife Maria mentions, you know, offhand to Antonio how he never should have pawned the bike, uh, to which Antonio responds, they, they wouldn't have eaten otherwise. And so, go ahead, I, I think this this movie does an incredible job of setting up stakes. I mean, it's it's such a simple setup, and I, I always appreciate that, a simple setup where we, 
I, I know what to focus on. And so the fact that like, yes, you need a bike to have this job and having this job is essential because they're so hard to come by, but also like you only don't have a bike because you needed to eat. So, mm-hmm. you know, I just, it, it, I think it makes a very, it does a very efficient job of showing the direness of their situation and how, like, how much depends on this bike. So they go to the, the pawn shop. They're going to trade essentially their sheets, their bed they rip sheets. rip the sheets off their bed. Yes. And they're going to trade those for the money that they need then to reacquire the bike. Uh, and you see in this I, I don't know what what to how to describe this because it's not a pawn shop exactly, but it's, yeah, it's gigantic. It's this huge warehouse, and there you can tell that there are thousands upon thousands of bags of clothes or sheets or something that everyone is pawning off all of their belongings just to get by. Which again is, mm-hmm. uh, as Josh was saying, really setting up the stakes of this movie that it's not just Antonio's family that's poor; it's friggin' everybody in this everyone, area. Yeah. Uh, so he reports to the job where he finds out he's going to be putting up posters around town, uh, which apparently requires a, a bike. Uh, I mean, I know that you know, we're, we're talking about the, uh, transportation issues, but it just seems so impractical having to you carry efficient, man. a ladder and a bucket and a basket of posters and all this. And you have to do this while bouncing on a bike through the busiest city. <laughs> Yeah. Well, imagine having to carry a ladder and a bucket of paint and a thing of posters and a brush and not having a bike. I just think I, I, would, I would feel less obstructive <laughs> just carrying it myself. Yeah, personally. but it, it's like then you wouldn't get as much done as your employer wants you and they would get just get somebody who does have a bike. And that's probably the that's crux the of it is that, yeah. <laughs> that he needs it because they need the posters up quick. Yeah. Uh, and I, I thought it was interesting. The posters that he's putting up all over town are... Uh, movie posters. I don't remember which movie it was, but I, I distinctly remember Rita Hayworth uh, mm-hmm. being featured prominently, which I think is another way of kind of juxtaposing the state that Italy is in versus, mm-hmm. you know, the state that Hollywood is in. Yeah. Uh, what do you guys think about that? Yeah, I thought it was interesting as well. And uh, I read a book for one of a course that I had to do in university about um, the immediate post-war and how Hollywood had all these movies saved up that hadn't been able to be released in a lot of European markets that were, you know, fascist or totalitarian or wouldn't allow, uh, you know, movies that might not um, agree with the, the, the imposed ideology of the state. And so it's interesting that a lot of movies from the from the 30s and early 40s would just get pumped out to all of Europe at this point. Um, and it makes sense. You know, it, it it definitely shows you how the world was, uh, it, you know, completely different from America to Italy. And a lot of the progression in the next 20 to 25 years is the same. Like we get when, no, the US gets color television, Italy gets it 50 years later. Uh, you know, it's all that ki- that kind of progress. Like uh, the, the, I don't know, the washing machine becomes a common use item. Italy gets it 25 years later. Then, you know, slowly over time, uh, this has changed because being part of the European Union and all that, the country is a first world country now by all accounts. But it, there was that moment where it, it was in a state of complete poverty. And the movie shows this well. Well, so while he's out putting up posters, uh, Antonio is up on his ladder, is slathering glue on a poster, and then some young hooligan shows up and steals his bike. 
And no. So, there it is. The crux the of the movie. The titular bicycle thief. Well, there's only bicycle thieves. This is the yeah. first bicycle thief. Singular yes. thief. Yeah. Yes. Uh, and the rest of the movie is attempt after attempt to locate the bike or the thief. Uh, and uh, and so that's where that's the end of the non-spoilery stuff for this movie. Now, granted, mm-hmm. like there's a huge swath here in the middle that's all kind of uh, samey a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you know, but we'll, we'll we'll get to that in a second. But for now, uh, what do you guys think of this movie? I I I think it's a fantastic little film. Uh, I think the the it feels as Josh said before it feels way more modern than a lot of other movies in the forties. Uh, the fact of being shot on location uh, gives it that more contemporary feeling. I think the acting, as we said, is it really surprised me. Uh, I think both uh, the main protagonists, which I would say are Antonio and Bruno. Antonio and Bruno, sorry. I hate that I'm doing the English accent to say Italian names, but it comes natural. <laughs> okay. um, they're both, their performances are both absolutely fantastic, and I really felt uh, what they were going through. And I think picking from regular people who are living through that moment, as I said before, it, it, it really enhances those feelings. Like They're drawing from real-life experience that is their everyday life. Um, and just overall, I think the film in Italy, uh, I know you, we, you're going to ask this a bit later, but um, it, it has a lasting um, influence in Italy because it's portraying a moment in time and that we all know about uh, from history, from uh, what our grandparents tell us, but aren't really able to visualize in the same way that uh, you know, without this movie, we wouldn't be able to, and th- these types of movies, but this is one of mo- the most famous ones, um, we wouldn't be able to visualize and understand the really dire situation that the country was in, in post-war, uh, during the post- post-Second World War period. Um, so I think it has, like, a, an enduring importance in that sense. And, I, and I'm actually quite interesting, interested in knowing why this one specifically broke out into kind of the quote-unquote mainstream obviously it's a movie from 1949 so it's not like super mainstream now but it's still one of those classic uh italian films that people know people who are into movies know and i'm i'm interested to know why this one specifically was the one that broke out and maybe not another one it's curious about that perspective it's a great first of all it's a fantastic film so maybe that's a big part of it but yeah but i mean there's a lot of great films that come out of italy in the in the 40s and 50s and and not Mm -hmm. just italy but like this is one of the mountains of of any mm-hmm. any any country's movies from from the 40s and 50s and yeah. you know i don't know if i can like specifically answer why this w- was kind of crowned that but i can tell you what i see in it and i agree this is a great movie and you know not every quote-unquote great movie from this time period is is one that i respond to like a lot of times i'll be working my way through the list of greatest movies of all time and i'll get to one and like I'll enjoy it, but it mostly feels like homework than anything else. Mm-hmm. And like, this doesn't feel like homework. I legitimately really, really enjoy this movie. And, um, well, I mean, I, I have an outline here. I, I really, I, I love the first third of the movie a lot. I think the middle third is kind of frustrating, maybe by design, but whether it's by design or not, it's still frustrating. And then the last third I think is uh, great payoff and really emotionally resonant. And yeah. it's also like only an hour and a half long. So like if the yeah. middle half an hour is a little muddlesome for me, I don't really care. Just that it's, it's worth it for the payoff in the last third. And I think the setup in the first third is, is incredible. And in terms of like why it has such a lasting appeal, 
Hugo, I'm glad you highlighted why it might have lasting appeal in Italy, that it was capturing a time mm-hmm. and place in the country. I think, for me, the reason I think I connect with it, you know, as a non-Italian and as someone who's living in 2021, um, like I said, I think it does an incredible job of setting up stakes. And, like, it's such a simple setup, but it's it's easy to under, it's easy to, to buy into. It's easy, it's easy, because they do such a great job in the first third, you know, again, showing you that these three people's lives literally depend on him having this bicycle. Like, they will starve if he doesn't have this bicycle, or, you know, potentially starve. I mean, they've, they're already giving away everything they have to be able to eat. The last thing they have to give away is the clothes off their backs. So, mm-hmm. I think they do a really great job of showing the stakes, and then the payoff in the end is, I think, uh, resonant, like I said. Yeah, and that's the same for me. This movie... That, like Josh says, does such a great job of setting up the stakes and setting up in such a way that you can immediately relate to it. Even if you haven't ever experienced extreme poverty, you can mm-hmm. understand the idea behind losing something, losing the thing that is the crux of your life. Uh, you know, so it, for anybody that could that could be anything like, you know, uh, I record podcasts and I stream. And so if someone stole my computer, that would really mess up my life, right? So I like mm-hmm. obviously different scales, but it's, it's mm-hmm. something that anyone can find something to relate to this situation. I also want to point out that Hugo said that it showed that it helped us understand the direness of the situation in Italy. And I think that's also something I respond to is it, um, it, it helps us understand why people would take certain actions that if mm-hmm. we didn't if, if we just kind of saw the action in isolation we would feel one way about it but because we see like the story behind it and the context in which that possibly bad action takes place we feel a little differently about it and we give maybe are prepared to give a little bit more grace to people who do quote-unquote bad things possibly the the other reason i think that this uh stands out for me and I think would be a a good reason for why it is the one that broke out is because in addition to having a relatable story that, that, and a simple story that everyone can understand very easily. It also is doing the important thing of showcasing the poverty. Uh, So poverty is not something that has gone away. Obviously there poverty is still a very real issue all over the world. So you combine a compelling story with a timeless and important message, and that, I think, is one of the things that makes Bicycle Thieves so resonant even today. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, granted, I haven't seen a ton of other neorealist movies, uh, so the poverty message would probably still be resonant, but I think Bicycle Thieves' relatable story uh, gives it an edge. That, that's a hypothesis for me, anyways, mm-hmm. for why this one stands out. I mean, not to bring up Nomadland again, but, like, imagine Nomadland, but, like, 20 minutes in, someone steals Fern's van. That's basically yeah. like what Bicycle Thieves is, essentially, <laughs> which is a different movie than when we got with Nomadland, but that'd be a, you know, mm-hmm. that'd be dire. Yeah, I can see how this uh, just is kind of a universal tale of what it is to live in a country that has undergone something so terrible, uh, such as, you know, 20 years of dictatorship and then a world war. You know, in which and it and I think it it delivers an interesting point of view, because for all intents and purposes, uh, you know, Italy, Germany, Japan were the the enemy in World War Two, and but to see the perspective of the people who you know live inside the country and what the aftermath of all that destruction does to to the society, to the economy, and the dire straits that you live afterwards is, I think, pretty universal. And I, you know, it. 
it could be equated to a movie made, I don't know, about any other country that, you know, has been, you know, uh, a dictatorship and then there was a war and then it wasn't a dictatorship anymore. But, you know, the economy is still broken. The country's still broken. What, where do we go from now? The, um, the systems, the systems to take care of its people are yeah. broken. So the, the people kind of are left to their own devices, mm-hmm. essentially, which I think we see a lot in this movie for sure. Yeah. Okay. So uh, the next thing that we wanted to touch on here before we get into spoilers um, well, I guess, uh, I don't know, this kind of is borderline spoiler territory. So the question of whether or not the movie's title should be singular or plural. Uh, yes. The, say the name for me in Italian, please, Hugo. Ladri e biciclette. Uh, is plural it in is, Italian. Yes. Uh, and that is the original title. So, you know, for me, mm-hmm. that should be the sticking point. <laughs> also, and that's that's how the movie was released in the United States and the United Kingdom. Uh, it was called Bicycle Thieves, but uh, from my very brief cursory research, apparently the Bicycle Thief appeared on some posters in the United States. Correct. And then mm-hmm. the uh, the like official New York Times review of the movie from 1949 called it the Bicycle Thief as opposed to Bicycle Thieves. So now mm-hmm. like it's kind of been called both things, both Bicycle Thieves and the Bicycle Thief in the English language world. Um, and I think, I think it definitely needs to be plural. And I think that if you watch, I think that's kind of like the, the punchline of the movie is the fact that the title is plural and that there's more than one bicycle thief in the movie. And that, that, um, I mean, someone else, I think someone else, uh, a a different reviewer kind of had the same point, but the opposite perspective, he thought that it should be called the bicycle thief, but like, it's not the bicycle thief that you think is the title's referring to. Like it's referring to somebody else, you know? you know, maybe the, the real bicycle thief was inside us all along, that kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I, I think that like the, in the last five minutes of the movie, the title really comes into focus of why it's called bicycle thieves and not the bicycle thief. And that's why I think it should definitely mm-hmm. be bicycle thieves. I do like that both ty- both ways of viewing the title, both have great meaning either way. Uh, yeah. so it's one of those few occurrences where I think changing the title, uh, didn't necessarily harm the movie. I mean, like, you know, there's a lot of times mm-hmm. where foreign films will get released in the U.S. or vice versa, and the titles don't translate exactly, and it leads to some misconceptions sometimes on, on movies. Like, uh, what was it? Do you remember what Rudy was called in Italy? Yeah, it was like something winning, and it was a dumb... But the one that I always <laughs> remember is Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. In Italian, it's called Semilasci di Cancello, which means, if you leave me, I'll delete you. <laughs> which is an hilarious title but yeah so like sometimes these titles get wildly different titles mm-hmm. and uh, in this case they were just different enough that it provides actually an interesting context for the movie no matter which title you're, yeah. you're getting there's something you can get from it in either case so i do think it's pretty cool uh, despite it being a mistake that they called it the bicycle thief on some of those posters and in some reviews, because it did lead to uh, this this really kind of cool discussion piece to have yeah. about this movie. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, um, go ahead, me, um Regardless of the plot of the film and whatever happens and how the, the, the plot itself does justify the plural, um, I think the thievery is is a metaphor it's it's just showing how people are so poor that even something as simple as a bicycle can become a huge commodity 
uh, and how being in that situation leads you to commit a crime, which is stealing a bicycle. So it, I think because it's so symbolic of just the general situation of, of how poor people are, it, I think it needs to be plural regardless of the plot itself. I have this later in the outline, but someone uh, asked having a conversation with a listener, TJ, shout out to TJ, and he was, we're talking about this movie because he watched this movie in preparation to listen to this episode because he's a very loyal listener. And he said that, you know, oh, yeah. um, the, the state of Italy at the time was that, you know, people were, people were forced to deprive each other of the means of economic mobility, i.e. they were forced to steal each other's bicycles, basically, uh, because the institutions that were supposed to help them, you know, the police, the church, etc., were entirely ineffective. So, like, it was people were reduced like the street justice stealing from each other kind of thing just to get by. So as you just said, Hugo was kind of like a, a city of bicycle thieves. Uh, And I don't mean that in the derogatory derogatory sense, but in like a desperation sense, like everyone was so desperate that they could all resort to this, you know? Yeah. And you know, the bicycle is just happens to be the crux of this movie, but Mm -hmm. it could have been called, you know, something else thieves bread, bread it, thieves it anything like that yeah, yeah. it would have fit it would have pa- fit pasta the, thieves the, overall, <laughs> the pasta thieves yeah i guess it, it, the pizza thieves it, it could have been the hit sequel know, it, but it but it could have fit what the movie was going for regardless it's, it's just yes. the bicycle is just kind of the justification that they chose yeah literally a MacGuffin. yes <laughs> so uh Let's get into our continue our plot summary in the now sp- more spoilery stuff. Uh, so you know, hopefully you did watch the movie, <laughs> like TJ, like TJ, who is a loyal listener, and we love him for it. Thank you, TJ. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so continuing on, uh, the bike has been stolen. So Antonio reports the theft to the police, who of course promptly tell him there is nothing they can do, and there is nothing they will do. <laughs> Uh, real quick, uh, at the police station, he's talking to the to the captain reporting the crime, and a, another policeman walks by, and he says, "Anything serious, captain?" And the captain says, "Just a bicycle." Yeah, like which I thought was like a really him. poignant like, this line. Is, like, the most important thing to this guy's life. And you're like, well, that's ah, no the thing big is, deal. like, the police captain doesn't know that. He doesn't know it's the most important thing in this guy's life that this family will starve without this bicycle. So the fact that he says, "Just a bicycle," I thought was uh, very poignant mm-hmm. and very indicative that the police are going to do literally nothing to help. Yes. Uh, but they do give him some great advice. They say, go find it yourself, (laughs) which again, street, it's street justice. Like the the institutions, the institutions aren't helping them. So they're they're left to fend for themselves. So, uh, Antonio goes to a guy who is apparently the kind of guy you go see when you've got this kind of problem. Uh, and (laughs) the wolf. (laughs) Yeah, pretty much. Uh, and they determine that at this point, the bike has probably been split up and to be sold as parts. So they're going to go look through all the bike parts, uh, at the stalls in the market in the morning, uh, mm-hmm. and try to find his particular bike parts and then they'll put it back together. Uh, so this, you know, I, this is the point where the movie starts to, uh, drag a little for me. We spend a mm-hmm. long time, uh, in sifting this marketplace, parts. Yeah. just sifting through parts and like it. It is actually kind of visually interesting, all mm-hmm. these bike parts, but it it does go on a little long for my taste. Well, I, I think they they do give a good sense of how like this feels like such an impossible task, like a needle in a haystack finding this bike in all of Rome. Also, that's probably split up by this point. So like, mm-hmm. I appreciate it for that, but I I agree. And this is what I'm this is what I was talking about when I said the middle third is not my favorite part of the movie because it's kind of frustrating. And yeah. I, I like how in this part he keeps repeating, oh the it's a Fidus, which fetus. is the brand. 
the bike the bike is you know it's a brand of a bike but it's like how many feeder spikes are probably there like it could be thousands, thousands. yeah yeah well and so this does illustrate the point that this is a futile effort uh yes. to, to do this uh, so they don't find it at that market so then they uh they split up and they're head to another market yeah. they head to another market there's also a weird pedophile scene here yeah that was weird yeah that, that was weird like, oh, that's Okay, that's in the movie. I don't especially since it's also it. not uh, instrumental to the movie at all. It's not. It's just, <laughs> it's there. Um, I don't know. Maybe there was a pedophile problem in Rome in the nineteen forties, and we could don't also know. be um, that this movie being filmed on location, there was just was some just creepy guy. <laughs> I caught. I don't think so. But yeah. I don't think they would have filmed him in that case. Yeah, <laughs> well, they, they did they film during a rainstorm. Quite a while. Put, put a mic on this guy. He's he's giving us gold over here. <laughs> Oh, by the way, uh, movies in Italy until like the 70s did not capture sound on location. Very it's clear in this overdubbed. movie as well. You, yeah, uh, it's all overdubbed. Uh, Just which, you know, fact. doesn't bother me, especially again, no, no, no. especially in, with black and white movies in general, because that was mm-hmm. such a common thing, not just in Italy. You know, a lot of American films, audio was done mm-hmm. after the fact. Uh but in any case, they, they go to this uh, other marketplace and uh, it starts raining a ton and Antonio's getting soaked and Bruno, he takes his son Bruno with him. I guess I sh- yeah. we should have mentioned that. Bruno is with Antonio on this search beginning to end, which yeah. seems like a bit of uh, a bit irresponsible, but also what's he going to do with his kid uh, Nothing. While, while he's doing and this? And also it, it's interesting. I think his character is instrumental to the overall theme of the film because he's working. As well, the child yes. uh, on the first day he takes him to work. He's not going to school. He's working because like they're so poor, and probably the institutions of schools haven't been rebuilt as much as they uh, should anyway. So he's working at the time, and this resonated with me because you know my grandfather. He's uh, eighty six years old now, and you know he tells me we we were twelve years old. We were either going to school, but a lot of us were just working getting little jobs because we were so poor we couldn't get by and there was no like institutional rule oh you have to like now in italy you have to stay in school until you're 16 that there's like a law same here yeah yeah but like back then it was just like random little jobs they were just probably paying cash no contracts but you're doing it but i mean to your point though like i you know antonio does bring bruno around to help look for the bike but also bruno is very capable and precocious he's not like a drag on the search he's actually instrumental to the search yeah and 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 in a lot of points in the movie bruno is the saves the day saves the day and not just saves the day but like he's the more responsible person yeah like yes he He takes appropriate steps keeps his cool uh which i think is very interesting and again because he's already working, it makes a lot of sense that he's mm-hmm. such a self-reliant child. Yeah, he's. Uh, I think the idea is that yeah, he's self-reliant, but at the same time, he doesn't. He can't fully understand the desperation of the situation that an older man who has lived through this horrible period would fully understand. So this is why I think he's able to keep his cool a little more than his father. So. Uh, while at this new marketplace, it starts raining a ton. They go stand off on the side uh, while it's raining. And uh, the rain stops just in time for a guy on a bike to ride by. And who should it be? But the thief riding... The bicycle in, thief. The bicycle, the bicycle thief, thief. Riding Antonio's bike. Uh, and he stops briefly to give some money to an old man on the street. Uh, and he tells him, this is all I can get you right now. Uh, I don't know. I still don't fully understand their relationship 
Me neither. I don't think uh, it matters, though. I don't know that it matters, though. It just sets yeah. up that this old man has at least some form of a relationship with our bicycle thief. It, it just gives them an additional MacGuffin to potentially search for, because previously mm-hmm. they were looking for either the bike or the thief, and now they're looking for either the bike or the thief, or the old man who can lead them to the bike or the thief. So, so Antonio chases the thief for a bit, but of course he's riding on a bike, so he gets away. Uh, so then Antonio gets the idea to come back, as Josh says, and let's find that old man. So they search for the old man, and they basically immediately find him. It did not take any time at all to relocate this guy. Uh, he follows him into a church uh, where he harasses the old man for several minutes, and no one like puts a stop to it, it for an exceedingly long time. Eventually, some people are like, hey, man, you're really disrupting church. <laughs> <laughs> it- the church scene is another scene where it's kind of showing the point of view of uh, some, at least, of the neorealist movement as a whole. Where, you know, they weren't... Um, they were trying to look forward and kind of leave back a lot of the traditions that, you know, to some extent had led to 20 years of fascism and were associated with 20 mm-hmm. years of fascism. So even the contempt that they have for the church as an institution, I think, is shown in the movie. In the fact that he's looking around for this guy he doesn't really have he doesn't seem to really care that mass is going on at all like even though he's in a dire situation he he really doesn't he's just walking through doesn't care so uh while harassing this old man for information he does eventually get the old man to give him an address but he doesn't believe the old man so uh he's gonna force him to take him there the old man shakes him off and disappears uh and then now bruno is very upset and uh, Antonio is very upset, so he smacks his son for whining. And that's uh, this is where we get into the next moment in the movie where I actually think is something important is happening. And I know Josh feels the same way here. Uh, yeah, yeah. There's this moment where he Antonio kind of snaps and like hits his son, and um, I kind of see that as a microcosm for the point of the movie as a whole, which is yeah. if we just like see a dude hit his young son. In, in, in a vacuum like we react a certain way to it and think you're a dick like what are you doing don't do that and it's not it's not that like it's not okay that he hits bruno but like mm-hmm. given that we see how much frustration and um desperation is behind it and antonio's coming to the end of his rope i at least get it a little more like i you know yeah. I, i'm not excusing it by any means but I at least understand. you understand the motivation yes and and He's not doing this just to do it on a power trip. He's doing it because he's he feels powerless and just yeah. is kind of lashing out at his powerlessness. And Bruno, you know, takes the brunt of it, unfortunately. But like, yeah, and it does make me it does make me kind of dislike Antonio here because like this is one of those key things about abuse, especially child abuse. It, it's when people abuse children, they are exercising power over someone who does not have power because they want to feel powerful. And, yeah. you know, so it. it I mean, it's a little heartbreaking because Antonio, I know, is just a a guy struggling to survive at this point. But it's like, you know, don't I don't know. You you, you get my point. (laughs) Go ahead. Yeah, yeah, I do. I think there's two things that first he I think which mirrors what will happen later. You can tell he feels shame. uh, Yes. Quite soon. Um, And also, second thing, it's also Italy in the 40s. So like smacking your child isn't, you know. Probably was, not considered. Well, sure, but <laughs> as, you know, that was also a commonplace thing in the United States. Yeah, it's, it doesn't make it good. I'm just saying it, we don't have the same standards. So, like, we're having reactions today. to it today that yeah, people watching that the movie then would, may not have had. Probably not, yeah. 
And in fact, I think the people would have reacted, oh, well, but he's being so ashamed. He's not being that much of an angry dad, uh, just to put it into context. But um, I agree with everything you guys said. I think it also, this scene is important because it, it Bruno up to now has been a partner, a, an equal partner. Sometimes, as we said, he keeps his cool. He's very capable as a child. This is the scene, this, and then the scene after the few scenes afterwards. These are the scenes where we realize he is a child. Yes. I think where he is fully being a child and as strong and as grown as he has to be, as, as mature he has to be because of his situation, he's still a child. And I think this scene is important for that as well. So after smacking his son, uh, Bruno doesn't want to hang out with his dad anymore. So Antonio leaves him uh, on a bridge. Mm -hmm. while he's going to go search for the old man. It's not but a few seconds after that, that while he's searching for the old man, he hears some ruckus uh, from a crowd where people are shouting about a boy is drowning in the river. So, of course, mm -hmm. Antonio freaks out immediately because he assumes that this is uh, Bruno. So he mm -hmm. runs back. Uh, and I actually I really like this sh the shot in this scene where he runs under the bridge and the camera stops following him. I just think yeah. it, uh, the lighting is really cool in that scene. And it, you know, for the majority of the movie, the camera is close up on Antonio basically all the time. Uh, and so I, I, it was a, a visually unique scene in the movie was he, as he's taken off to go uh, see what's going on there under the bridge. Uh, but he gets over there to the other, other side of the bridge and uh, finds that it was not Bruno in the river. Some other boy was in there and, and he's being pulled out. Uh, so he, he lives. He lives, which is yeah. important. I guess, yeah, I should say he gets pulled out alive. <laughs> uh, but Antonio is now looking around for Bruno, and he turns around and sees him uh, sitting at the top of the steps. Uh, and we see a bit of a personality change where Antonio, you know, and again, we've already seen that he has he's going to have some shame, but this is where that shame really comes to the top uh, for having mm -hmm. hit his son because he realizes in this moment just how much his son means to him. Uh, and I think that's a really important moment in this movie because it serves as an opportunity to remind Antonio and the audience uh, of what is actually most important. So it is very important. The bike is the crux of the movie and is super important, but there is always, there's this one thing that is even more important than the bike and that's his son. Yeah. The bike is a means to feed his son. Yes. And yeah. he's losing sight of that and focusing on the bike instead of focusing on what the bike is gonna give him the ability to do which is take care of this boy mm -hmm. uh, and so what does he do immediately after this what do they what do they do yeah uh, he's gonna make up make it up to his son gonna take him out for pizza you know yeah <laughs> hey let's go have a pizza make everything okay so uh they go by the to... way you can you, you you can hit me if you take him out to pizza afterwards i'll forgive you for hitting me that's just uh <laughs> A truth about myself. Well, keep that in yes. mind. If you ever want to beat up Josh, <laughs> buy him a pizza. Just buy him a pizza. <laughs> so they go to, I, I, I couldn't tell if this was supposed to be a restaurant or, you know, a bar. Yeah, it's or... like it. Yeah, it yeah it's like, like it. a little restaurant. Yeah. Uh, so they go into this restaurant. Oh, yeah. No, it's it's definitely a restaurant. Because there, there's a family like there's, there. but There's waiters like, dressed up. It's like, yeah. But like he goes in and he asks for pizza. And they immediately say, oh, we don't have pizza here. Like it was the most outrageous request in the world. Yeah, and I think I think the uh, idea sir, is, this is Italy. Yeah, I think the, the idea is they're close to the river, and it might be a, a nicer area of the city where the, very clearly the wealthier was. people, yeah, the wealthier people live. And the idea of him, I want to take you out. Oh, let's okay, let's forget about all our problems and go have a fancy lunch. 
And as soon as they get there, they realize, oh, actually, maybe we can't really afford to have a fancy lunch. So instead of pizza, they order mozzarella sandwiches. Or at least that's what the subtitles say they're ordering. Hugo has explained to me, it's not it's, just it's, mozzarella between two pieces of bread. <laughs> no, it's like... Which sounds it's, good. <laughs> it sounds good as well. Yeah. It, no, it's called mozzarella in carrozza. And it's like, yeah, it's mozzarella, uh, two slices of bread, and then there's a batter outside and it's fried. So it, it, it's uh, really yeah, right? good. So no, that sounds awesome. Oh my God. It's really good. Uh, Dip that in a little marinara. Ooh. Oh, Ooh. yes. Yeah, yeah. I'm on board for this. Yes. Uh, but yeah, so, but, but with the subtitles just saying mozzarella sandwich and it, you know, not being super clear what it is they're eating, I'm like, this sounds really boring, but also I'm really intrigued. Yes. <laughs> uh, but they have a, a nice little moment here mm-hmm. where uh, Antonio is talking with his son and educates him about the differences between their life and the lives of the rich and wealthy that are mm-hmm. in this restaurant with them who are having absolute feasts. Uh, mm-hmm. And I, I put nice in quotes because I'm being very sarcastic. This is a... Yes, th- those listening on the audio mediums, Grace just did air quotes around the nice little <laughs> moment line. Yeah, because yeah, it is not a nice moment. Uh, Antonio, as, as Josh po- points out in our notes here, Antonio is giving up. <laughs> yes, this, this scene is him giving up. Like, before they go have lunch, he literally says the words to Bruno, why kill myself worrying when I'll just, when I'll end up just as dead anyway? Mm-hmm. Which is true, but also... Maybe not the best attitude when you're looking for something that will give you your livelihood back. Also, yeah. not very positive for your child. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, I mean, that's that's kind of that's kind of the thing. Is like he, you know, he he hits Bruno. Bruno stays in the bridge, and he thinks for a few seconds that Bruno has fallen in the river and has died. And so, to make up for potentially hitting Bruno, you think, okay, you're gonna treat him as like an apology but it's not really an apology it's more of a let's just get drunk and forget our problems and yeah be yeah he be also homeless. gives him a glass of wine which yes. Is, yes he does it says oh if your if your mother knew about this she'd be very grumpy <laughs> but then uh you know to to you know kind of put a bow on it the scene ends with antonio saying you know he reiterates the stakes the last thing he says mm-hmm. before they leave is now we have to find it otherwise we won't eat so yeah. Because they yeah, definitely yeah. spent way too much money on this they meal. Got the, they got the full bottle of wine, yeah, instead of the half bottle. Yeah, and they do like the scene really does the math and kind of reestablishes what having that little simple job means to his family. Is I mm-hmm. thought was yeah. He, he goes through how much he would he would have gotten paid had he been yeah. able to keep that job, but if, if his bike hadn't gotten stolen, yeah, they would have had it made. Relatively yeah. speaking. Also, kind of a funny, funny scene as well, where where Bruno is look like just eating a sandwich with his hands, and he's looking back and forth. This super rich, fancy kid who's like very, you know, yeah. Polite. That's actually detail. That that's a detail I wanted to note. Is I I didn't notice this the first time I saw it, but this most recent watch, it looks like Bruno doesn't know how to use silverware. Correct. He yeah. does not know how yeah. to use a knife he and fork. Not. And I think it would be indicative that his family probably does not have knives well, and forks. <laughs> Antonio knows how to use it. And yeah. like, but Bruno keeps like looking at the kid at the table behind him, the rich kid, the rich family, mm-hmm. and like Bruno's struggling with his knife and fork. He clearly has never used it before. Yeah, it's a, just a really good detail. They don't really like hang a lantern on anything. Yeah. You just you know, the, it also there. bummed me out that Antonio didn't like tell him how to use it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I suspect they they would have forks at home because maybe you're making pasta, which is popular food, uh, cheap food. True, and they would have. And forks. So you're eating it with a fork, but you probably he's probably never gone to a restaurant to be honest to eat out because he's. He was born during World War Two. So in a poor family. 
after after lunch, uh, they go to see the woman who sees, who we briefly saw earlier in the movie. Uh, she's essentially a fortune teller of sorts, but like a Christian fortune teller, I guess. Yeah, Christian. Yeah, <laughs> I, I think the translation I wrote in the outline, the translation, the woman who sees, is funny because in Italian it's la santona, which is this idea of yeah it's kind of a fortune teller but it's very very much a, reli- a religious figure it's like these these old uh, men and women who said that they that, that god spoke to them or that the virgin mary spoke to them and they were giving people advice for money so that's that, very that interesting that's very interesting it kind of recontextualizes the point that i have here which is um Grizzly mentioned we see we see this woman early in the movie in Act One. We didn't we didn't mention our plot summary, but basically after Antonio gets his job and after they're able to get the bike back, but before he starts his job and the bike is stolen, Maria takes him to see this woman because apparently she had already, you know, gotten counsel from this woman who sees and like you know, she predicted that Antonio would be able to find a job and like because he has found a job now, she wants to go like pay fifty lira to this woman who sees is like a thank you. And Antonio kind of dismisses this out of hand and like leads Maria away without having paid their alms basically. And I wonder if this is like indicating that there's some kind of like cosmic and or karma at play here that he doesn't, he kind of dismisses the woman who predicted he would get a job. And then the next day he gets his bicycle stolen. And then Mm -hmm. he also here in this, in, in the third act here, they go him and Antonio and Bruno go see this woman who sees she gives him advice, and then he steps out of her house, and then immediately sees the thief, like right. immediately. Um, so I'm I'm wondering if they're like, do you think the movie's trying to give the sense that there is some kind of like, you know, God's hand moving the story a little bit? I, I would say no because of the ending. Like it's yeah yeah yeah. I think that we're supposed <laughs> to... kind of incidental that it it yeah. happens to be that way. It's kind of I think it's just showing how poor working class guy in the 40s might turn to different uh avenues that kind of give him meaning and give him hope Um, because she does give very she does give very vague advice she gives uh, she's the classic generic oh if you're lucky you're gonna find it which is exactly what his friend that he went to see at the beginning of the movie tells him so it's like yeah thank you i guess and he gives him the money like so i i think that this is not necessarily there i don't think there are I don't think Tasika is trying to indicate that there actually is cosmic or karmic, you know, things at work here. He's yeah. just indicating that right now Antonio believes that there is some cosmic or karmic things at work. Yeah. And yeah, yeah, yeah. so that's what that scene serves as a purpose for. Cause then he does come outside and immediately see the thief, uh, which is the second time he's crossed paths with a thief, by the way. Because if you remember, he like was standing in the rain and he saw the thief ride by and talk to the mm-hmm. old man. So like yeah. two times, like he just happened that, upon him yeah which is why i find the middle third of the movie a little frustrating it's like they spend this half hour looking for the bike and it turns out to resolve itself just because they happen to cross paths with the thief mm-hmm. twice you know yeah yeah and i completely agree with that but yeah you uh, could have trimmed like 10 minutes off of this in that at, at least five of it could have been trimmed from the marketplace where they were looking at bike honestly you, you could have <laughs> trimmed like 40 from this movie but i mean that's not that's not the point obviously. yeah but like okay i don't think you could have trimmed 40 just because i think a lot of like both story like story wise yes but i think part of the movie is also showing this world and giving a document yes. of this real life situation that people are in so i think yes. there's an element to the movie that is not about the personal story that i think needs yes. to be there to some extent and 
and the desperation and frustration that that middle 40 minutes is, is basically mm-hmm. the entire point of the movie. So removing yeah. that would remove the point of the movie entirely. So yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm, so, I'm just being glib when I say you could remove 40 minutes, but yeah. <laughs> so they find the thief outside and uh, they, you know, they're both trying to play it like they don't recognize each other at first. Mm-hmm. And they're just kind of walking. And then as soon as he turns the corner, the thief takes off at a run. So Antonio and Bruno take off at a run and they chase him down uh, and accost him in his neighborhood. Uh, to interrogate him about the bike. Uh, so the thief says he didn't steal anything. And Antonio. Uh, Antonio is freaking out. Is freaking out. Uh, he's, freaking and out. he's like shaking he's him, it. being very Grabbing rough the guy, with him. Yelling at him. Yeah. Uh, and, and like the thief, the thief, the thief like can tell that Antonio is desperate and losing it. So he kind of like uses that to his advantage. And like the thief sees his neighbors kind of all gathered around outside and kind of like leads Antonio towards them so that they can see that there's this crazy guy yelling at him and grabbing at him. And he, the thief is playing it cool. Like I didn't do anything. This crazy guy's just bothering me. So he kind of, he, again, he kind of uses Antonio's desperation against him, knowing how it looks and knowing how a group of people will see how this looks and they will take his side, obviously, which they do. That's what and so he shows up, the, the, the crowd shows up and starts, you know, arguing with Antonio, telling him, oh, this guy's the best. He's yeah, never stolen a thing yeah. ever. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, spotless record and, you know, all, all this stuff. And I do think this is a very poignant thing because a, a common trait among thieves is that they don't steal from their own neighborhoods. So, mm-hmm. of course, in this neighborhood, uh, yeah. they are all going to think that this guy's just a stand-up guy because, you know, you, if, you, if you're stealing in your own neighborhood, you, you're going to get caught. <laughs> but then as you said bruno is kind of the level-headed one in a lot of situations so bruno is the one who like runs off and gets a police officer because he can see mm-hmm. this crowd turning on his father so he brings a police officer in to kind of you know de-escalate the situation while, a little bit while bruno's off getting the police officer the thief uh has a seizure or yeah. something i don't know exactly oh, so what illness befell the thief here <laughs> well i mean i think i think he's faking oh 100 right? he's faking yeah it, he's but, like he's because I just think everyone in the crowd like acts like this is a completely understandable and you know Yeah, it, to me it's kind of weird cuz like it, yeah, maybe he is faking it, but if he's faking it, it's it looks very realistic. Like he's doing the shakes and like you can see he has some some saliva coming out of his mouth. It's kind of I don't know. I thought it was a weird moment in the movie. I don't know why they really needed to go there. Um Well, I think he's working the crowd. Yeah, he's definitely he working is. the crowd. He, he's working the crowd. Like, again, he's this crazy guy is grabbing at him and yelling at him and accusing him of something. So he's like sickened. Yeah. But he's like, you know, the, the, these accusations are making him ill. And again, he's yeah. playing the crowds to get their sympathy. Yeah, but like, okay. Uh, <laughs> a seizure? <laughs> if you're if, if a person starts having a seizure in, in a big crowd, they're going to like freak out and get him medical help and not be like, oh, we'll see what you're doing to this guy. <laughs> you're making him yeah, yeah, have yeah, a yeah. seizure. What are you, what, what are you yeah, doing? Yeah. Traditional, <laughs> traditional 40s Italy, they just go get andare a prendere sali, which is like the little things that you smell. It's not necessarily as... <laughs> and then they like, they're like slapping his face a little bit, like, come on, yeah, pal, wake yeah, up. Yeah, you come know, on, like... yeah. But regardless, the cop shows up and the crowd's yeah. like, look what this jerk is doing to this kid here. He's, you know, mm-hmm. working him into a fit, basically. But the cop uh, searches this thief's house right yep they go up to yep. the house is you know the thief's so mother lets the them in and apparently this is you know uh <laughs> the way things work in 1940s italy but apparently the police just bring the person who is accusing you of being a thief into your home 
to help search mm. for the item that's been stolen. Uh, which I, I, I mean, Hugo, I don't know if you know anything. Is that a common it's, thing? Um, there was a, kind of a big culture of uh, reverence towards the police. Um, and it's kind even, of a thing. What, sorry? Even post-fascism? Yes. Um, <laughs> it's kind of a, a, a way that traditional Italian culture was. Um, and I would not see it as too weird that the police officer would get into the home. Like he asked, he asked the mother, and I, I do think it, it does make sense in the context. Well, so I think that, it makes sense that they would let him in, but I thought it was, the weird part was that they let him in with Antonio. Yeah, I guess. It's <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. I don't know. Like if you stole something from me, I, yeah. I wouldn't be allowed to enter your home with the police to search for it. Yeah, the police again, would go in is, and search is, for it. This is like a lawless time. Like Fair. The, and that was that was what I wasn't sure if this is yeah. like if this was a, a thing that they did because it's a movie or if this was a thing because yeah, I think it was there's... actually emblematic of the way things were in the society at the time. And mm. it also kind of highlights like the woman's blase-ness with the accusation. Like, oh, you're mm-hmm. going to accuse my kid of stealing? Like, here, even you can come in and look with the cop and show that we got nothing to yeah. hide in here. Like That's that fair, too. And also, I think that really the thing that I take away from this scene is that the thief is living in worst condition, worse conditions than Antonio is living even. Like, the mom specifically says, we have four of us living in this one room. And so, like... The thief is more desperate than Antonio is. So, like, Mm -hmm. yes, this bike means everything to Antonio and his family, but also maybe it potentially means everything to this thief as well. And that kind of is kind of the punchline coming later. Yeah. And so I think that's really the the most important aspect of this scene was to illustrate that, again, once again, that the desperation is everywhere. Uh, So uh, the police officer basically tells him that you have to catch the thief in the act uh, otherwise, there's nothing mm-hmm. we can do. Uh, and so, and as Josh points out in her notes, this is the foreshadowing. The fact that you have to catch him red-handed if anything is to be done, that that's foreshadowing, I think, for the next 10 minutes, yeah. So, yeah. defeated, Antonio leaves with Bruno, and on the walk back, Antonio sees bikes friggin' everywhere. There are mm-hmm. so many bikes. <laughs> well, there's, there's like, a, a football soccer game happening, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, and like, a stadium... All the, all the people who are at the stadium, all their bikes are, like, out, out front, basically. Mm-hmm. And the music builds up in, in a way here that, you know, his... Really, the music is manic, and you see Antonio become a bit manic uh, as he's, like, you know, trying to think, what am I going to do? Am I really going to do this? And he sees off to the side next to a building a lone bike off by itself, not locked up or anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so now he's struggling with this decision about whether or not he should steal this bike. Uh, so he tells Bruno to get out of here. Get out of streetcar. Go home. I'll meet you. I'll meet you home or whatever. I want you. He, basically, he doesn't say this to Bruno, but he doesn't. Want, he doesn't want Bruno to see him do what he's about to do. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And so, uh, while he's, you know, I mean, even before he kicks his son, his son out, they like sit down on the curb for a while, and like you can see that it's it's really just captures the melancholy. Beautiful. It's it's an it's an indelible image. This the shot of Bruno and Antonio sitting on the curb, both with like their their head in their hands. That's a really great image. So then he he kicks Bruno out. Says, "Hey, you get out of here, buddy. Uh, I'll see you in a little bit." And so then he goes to try to nonchalantly steal the bike and blunders horribly. He's immediately caught. Caught. 
<laughs> right away. Yes, he's caught red-handed, as the policeman told him must be the case a few minutes earlier. He must be caught red-handed in order for anything to be done, and he's caught red-handed. And seriously, it's like he grabs the bike, and immediately a guy from in the building's like, "Stop, thief!" Yes. <laughs> like, whoa, that that went off the rails real quick. Yeah, and also all the people coming out of the stadium start running after him because he's like, oh, "Stop that man!" So everybody catches him. And very, very notably, from like the filmmaking perspective, we witness both him steal the bike and him getting caught from Bruno's perspective. Like we're yeah. with Bruno watching his father get caught by this mob as he steals the bike which is again important because he didn't want bruno to see this and then he does and we see him we are with him as he sees it so they're telling antonio we're gonna we're gonna take you to jail you're going to prison uh and then bruno runs up and is you know crying and sobbing and trying to you know get his dad's attention and all that uh and eventually the person whose bike it is you know, decides, looks down at Bruno and decides not to press charges on Antonio. Uh, and, you know, the, you know, all the other people are like, well, if it was me, you'd be going to prison, buddy. Consider yourself lucky. And, you know, yeah. And we'll find example you're setting for your son. And that's the crux of this ending for me is mm-hmm. it, it hits, hits Antonio like a ton of bricks that he is not a good role model for his, his son here. And he came this close to losing what really was the most important thing to him. Uh, what do you guys think about it? Well, it ends with them walking away, like kind of despondent, the two of them. And um, Both Bruno grabs, yeah, Bruno grabs Antonio's hand as they're walking away. And they kind of, and then Antonio starts crying. And then Bruno starts crying because Antonio's crying. And then they just walk away with the crowd together. And it says, fiend on mm-hmm. on the screen Fine. so yeah so i mean I, I put down here i wanted to know what you guys thought like the ultimate thesis of the movie was and gris it sounds like you're kind of latching on to this you know what really matters it's it's his son that kind of thing right well that i mean i i do think that this movie does have multiple theses yeah, yeah. yeah 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 and it's very clear that and, and it does an excellent job with all of them in my opinion uh but yeah, for me, the thing that I latched onto the most was that through all this desperation, the most important thing was, and the reason for the desperation was providing for his son, but he let his desperation overshadow all that and he forgets it. And he's even given multiple opportunities during the movie to remember why I'm doing this and mm-hmm. continues to fall away from it again. And we see that at the end, I think the look on his face says it all that, you know, he is ashamed and, you know, just absolutely devastated that he was made this decision that was going to ultimately cause his, his son to lose his father and for him to lose his son. You know, I mean, I, I certainly, I, I agree with all of that. And I, I, I think that's definitely a bit, a big part of the movie. That's what I, I latched think, onto the most. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think the ending, the ending ending, like as they're kind of walking away, he's not, he, he's certainly feeling shame, but also feeling like a, what the hell do we do now? Kind yeah. of thing. You know, it's, it's a, man are we screwed kind of yeah. kind of thing it's and and certainly there's shame in that too but like i think there's a lot happening in that ending beyond just the shame mm-hmm. for sure and um i mean I, I think that for me the the crux of the movie is kind of just like that antonio stealing the bike in the last five minutes recontextualizes the original stealing of the bike in the first 20 minutes so like again as i said earlier we get a great sense in the first 20 minutes how important this bike is it's it's everything to this family so when it gets stolen we're we i immediately have like a visceral reaction to that where i'm like you know screw this guy who stole that bike you know low life 
etc blah 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 he needs a spike so bad and you are taking it from him because you're a low life and but then we spend the next like 90 minutes or 70 minutes like learning the circumstances why one might be stealing the bike right. it's not necessarily because you're a low life it's because you are so desperate and you need to eat and you either eat or you either steal the spike and eat or you don't eat and so, like, again, like like I mentioned, like, we saw that the thief, uh, Alfredo is named the thief, the guy who steals Antonio's bike. We mm-hmm. see that his living conditions are worse than Antonio's. So, it's, it's even though we ha- we don't know his, his full story, it's, it's quite possible this bike may have meant more to him even than, than to Antonio, possibly. Mm-hmm. So, again, like, I, I'm not, ex- I'm not, I don't think the movie is excusing stealing bicycles by any means but it's it's if you see a guy steal a bike in isolation you're going to react one way much like the crowd reacts with antonio at the end of this movie here Mm -hmm. but if you know his story you might give him a little bit more grace like i'm prepared to give him a little bit more grace than this crowd is willing to give him and so again it's like a like the sliding scale of morality when desperation is involved basically it kind of you, you you feel differently about it knowing his story and why he's stealing this bike at the end of the movie than if you just seen him steal a bike in isolation. And I think that's that's interesting. And that's why I think it's interesting it's called Bicycle Thieves and not the Bicycle Thief. Like, the, the, there are two thieves in the movie. Literally, it's the first thief and then Antonio himself is the thief. And um, as I said earlier, like, everyone in the city is potentially a bicycle thief because, you know, yes, everyone's, yeah, every, everyone's desperate. Of- we're all desperate. We're all hopeless. Yeah. And it'll lead us to do stuff that we would normally do. And yeah, for me, the, the crux of the ending is hopelessness. It's mm-hmm. um, him. It's both him feeling shame, but also feeling the desperation of, okay, I've, I've hit rock bottom and there's no, I've nothing to go on from now on, um, except for my family. But I mean, I'm not going to be able to put food on the table. So what's going to happen there? Um, and I love, and I think the shame is shown both, from his point of view and then from Bruno's point of view because I think the I think the initial reaction from Bruno is of shame he's ashamed that his father would do this but then he has been shown throughout the movie to be mature enough to understand that situation is dire and that at the end he forgives him he gets it and he's also as desperate as his dad is because you know, he he empathizes with that desperation and with that feeling of hopelessness, and I See, I think that's for me the the final crux of well, you know, and the I film. I wasn't entirely sure that Bruno fully understood the desperation still at the end. I think he was just so happy to not lose his dad here. Uh, yeah, I, he, I think he, he, he doesn't he he doesn't start crying till he sees Antonio cry. I think it's important to note. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think there's a yeah, but I think when he sees him cry. When he sees Antonio cry, he he's that's the understanding. dawning, yeah, the dawning of the and realization I, there. I think th- all of that is in there. Like they're all they're crying because oh, we managed to be together. What's important is family, but also at the same time, we feel the shame of the situation. I feel ashamed that my father did this. I, the father, feel ashamed that I, you know, did this despite the desperation. But th- but again, that desperation isn't gone. We have no idea what's going to happen in the future. So I think overall that what i'm left with is this working class family that is so alienated that it it doesn't they don't even realize that what is important and they stoop to lows that they would never do normally and they're left with hopelessness because what's going to happen and again to bring it back to the moment where this movie was made 1948 is the year where italy became a republic it it we had our constitution that year and 
the feeling of I have no idea what's going to happen now is something that I think Italians felt at the time, even though it was potentially a, a moment that would uh, cause you know, that, that, you know, that you could look at the future with hope. It, at the same time, everyone was poor. A vast majority of the country was poor without a job that it's it's a turning point in our history. And that feeling of hopelessness is represented in this very personal story, but it has kind of a macro meaning as well. So, I mean, that's ultimately why I think this movie is so highly regarded, is that this yeah. movie tackles all these themes and all these different narrative threads that are of varying degrees of importance or obviousness in the movie, but they're all tied together brilliantly at the end to where I, who was latched onto that father-son relationship for so much mm -hmm. of the movie, and Hugo, who's looking so much into the state of Italy at that time, and, mm -hmm. and Josh, who was so focused on the desperation, all of that ties together and yeah. leads to what I think is a near-perfect ending. It's so tragic, uh, and, mm -hmm. I, and I, I love that like we don't get a happy ending here because the, it's supposed to be, like I said earlier, holding a mirror up. We're not fixed yet. There's still a lot that mm -hmm. needs to be fixed in this, in this country and, and for the, the characters in this movie as well. But yeah. I absolutely loved this movie. I think it's yeah. awesome. Yeah. I, 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 like I said, like sometimes you look, watch the older quote unquote great movies and like they feel like homework. This mm -hmm. is feeling homework to me. I think this is a, no. it, this, this holds up great. I think. Well, uh, so that is going to bring us to the point where we have to uh, rank some movies. Mm -hmm. Yes, because we're not just ranking bicycle thieves, are we? We are not just ranking bicycle thieves. Because did you guys forget? No, we remember. No. <laughs> Thanks oh. for listening, Hugo. Thanks for listening to your uh, podcast. Sorry. No, I, to be honest, I've been having some I stuff, and I, I didn't. I, I, I actually haven't watched Chinatown yet. So if you're oh, waiting well, for oh, me shoot. to rank, yeah, that I'm was sorry, we were actually because <laughs> Josh and I <laughs> me anyway. Josh and I completely disagreed on the ranking, and we needed you. Oh, uh, okay. Wait another week. Be. Like I was gonna, I was gonna watch it today. I just was. I happened to be busy, so wait. Let's wait another week, and we'll rank it. Then. Okay. Okay. We will punt once again. Chinatown. Punt once ranking. again on Chinatown. <laughs> so I mean, should we? Do we want to tell him where we had it? Sure. I had it number yes. one. Ooh. I had it number one. Okay. And I had you it had it number eight. Number eight. Yeah. So you okay. know. So above Sound of Metal. I had it above Sound of Metal. <laughs> okay, we'll see. We'll see. But uh, so you can see like why it's like, well, we couldn't just decide to like average it and put it in the middle. Yeah, cause... <laughs> yeah. yeah. makes sense. Makes so, sense. So uh, we need Hugo on this. And I and just for the record, I'm not going to be mad either way. <laughs> if you want to put it number one as well. Cool. I would actually like to put it at number 23, but uh, <laughs> having not seen the film. Uh... <laughs> but so for today... Hugo. Well, go ahead, Josh. Where are you putting Bicycle Thieves? Yes. That's what I want to know. Yeah. I like this. I like this a lot. Uh, it would uh, it would be pretty high on the list for me. Definitely top 10. Uh, I think... Should I run down the top 10 real quick? Yeah, run top down the 10. top 10. Number 10, yeah. It's a Wonderful Life. Number 9, Ensemble. Number 8, Sound of Metal. Number 7, The Wind Rises. Number 6, The Departed. 5, mm -hmm. Your Name. Four, The Thing. Three, Network. Two, Boogie Nights. And number one, Citizen Kane. So I think because I think our list is a good balance between uh, what we like uh, on a personal level, but we are considering the importance of these films quite a lot in the way they're ranked. Right? We certainly so, do more so when Josh is involved to in some the, extent. the voting. <laughs> 
to some extent. So with that in mind, I would like to think about number five, 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 six. I was thinking, personally, I was, I was thinking, I was thinking four. So beneath network ahead of the thing. That's what I was, that's where I was going to put it. Okay. So I personally, again, enjoy the departed and your name more than this movie, but same giving it Mm -hmm. the extra points for its significance yeah I, I would put it i think i would put it number two two yeah well then i think there you go it's a number four above the thing and below network right well, there we go yeah so we're, um, we're just kind of we're not there's no math involved here we're just gonna be like yeah that sounds right no i mean no, that's, that's right. correct whoever it me and me like right because you put it higher than uh, what's it called? Than the thing? I don't. Yes. Jeff does. You and I had it both higher than Number the four. thing, and so then when you fell off, Josh, that means yep. that's where it stops because that's where the majority of us. Three sure. Are. Okay. You get yeah. it. Fine. It makes Whatever. sense. <laughs> it makes sense. Okay. Have Great. TJ explain Believe. it to you. Uh, <laughs> sure. <laughs> TJ seems really smart. Have, have him explain how the, the ranking system works. <laughs> He's actually asked me multiple times how the ranking system works, and I don't really know what to tell him. So there's no, there's no, there's no, there are no rules. That's so neither rhyme nor reason. That makes number ten on Sandy, number nine, Sound of Metal, number eight, The Wind Rises, seven, The Departed, six, Your Name, five, The Thing, four, Bicycle Thieves, three, Network, two, Boogie Nights, and number one, Citizen Kane. Uh, so next week, what are we talking about, guys? Next week we are going more lighthearted. We've been going through some heavier films, so we thought, oh, let's do... The idea was, uh, let's do either a fun comedy or a classic action movie, and we picked comedy, and we're going with Ferris Bueller's Day Off. And Josh is currently, for the audio listeners, currently showing off his poster that he has, where he's just gesticulating wildly at his Ferris Bueller's Day Off poster. (laughs) Yeah, so that's what we're going to talk about next week. Expect a lot of fourth wall breaking next week, I guess. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'll talk directly to the camera. Oh, wait, that's... That's yeah, what we do. Yeah, that happens already, <laughs> but uh, fair enough. So, in any case, Ferris Bueller's Day Off is our film to remember for next week. Uh, where can we find you on the them internets, Hugo? Uh, you can find me at Hugo underscore Pinai on Twitter. Do you have anything you'd like to promote outside of our delightful podcast? Yeah, I've also started doing a podcast called I'm So Tired uh, with a friend mm-hmm. of the podcast, Islam Dubai. And it the concept is we're both very tired and we just talk about random stuff every week for our own entertainment and if if you like to listen to that it's fun yeah it's it's a uh talks about a wide variety of things it's not yeah uh, we'll talk movies comics uh video games sometimes whatever whatever happens to be cool and 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 how tired society has made them yes (laughs) (laughs) and uh josh where can we find you on twitter and what do you have to promote uh on twitter at brosh jadley and you can find my YouTube channel, uh, Movies I Love and So Can You, uh, where I do video essays occasionally about movies and also have reviews of the Best Picture nominees for the last, I don't know, eight or nine years <laughs> logged away there. Check them out. <laughs> and they are fantastic. Uh, I'm, a, oh, thank I'm, you. I'm a big fan of Josh's work there on that YouTube channel. And uh, you can find me on Twitter at GoodGameGrizz. You can find me on Twitch, where I stream a wide variety of video games, twitch.tv slash GoodGameGrizz. And you can also, uh, if you're a Pokemon fan, I do also host a Pokemon podcast called Podcat Monsters, 
which is a very niche, <laughs> very niche <laughs> podcast, but we have a lot of fun with it. Uh, but yeah, it's so a great title. Until next time, thank you guys so much for joining us, and we will see you around.